Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to give our attention to a very familiar passage, verses 1 through 10. As you're turning there, I really appreciate so much the way that uh, Mark does the conference because I learn a lot from my brothers when they preach, but I learn also a whole lot just hearing them respond to important questions that, uh, that we deal with in the life of the church, in the life of the uh, believing community. And so I'm always blessed by their insights and their wisdom. And again, one of the things I think you'd like to know, uh, I've grown to know each of these men uh, quite well. And uh, they are the real deal. What, what you see uh, privately is who they are up here. Uh, they really do have a great love and passion for our Savior, for the gospel, for the church, for, for you all. They, they again and again as we meet and talk want to make sure that we are a blessing to you. And so it's just a, a delight to my own heart uh, that God has given me such good gifts uh, in men like this. And so I just want you to know that they really are uh, what they seem to be, devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uh, the title I've given to this passage is The Four Spiritual Laws of Conversion. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 1921, a man was born who would literally be used by the Lord Jesus Christ to impact the world. You all know his name, Bill Bright. He went to be with the Lord Jesus almost 10 years ago, dying in 2003. In 1951, he founded a very small organization that would grow to be a worldwide phenomenon. We knew it for many years as Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it goes by the shortened title, Crew. In 1979, he launched what is called the Jesus Film Project, which has been translated into more than 1,000 languages. It is the most translated film, the most translated movie in world history. And he authored a evangelistic track in 1952 entitled The Four Spiritual Laws. It's been translated into 144 languages and used all over the world to bring men and women and boys and girls to, to faith in Christ. And so as I prepared to look at Paul's four spiritual laws, I thought it might be interesting and instructive to ask again, what are the four spiritual laws that were conceived by this Presbyterian layman? And they are as follows. One, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Two, man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. 
Three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Now, let me make two thoughts before I move into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. First, I'm thankful for every single person who has been converted and come to faith in Christ as a result of this evangelistic tool called the four spiritual laws. I have met many, 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 many people who have shared with me I was converted by a friend in college sharing with me a little brown gold booklet called the four spiritual laws. Secondly, if I were to pin my own evangelistic track, uh, I would do it somewhat differently than the way Bill Bright did it, though I'm grateful for what he has done and what God has used in terms of this little book. I would rather prefer to go at it in a little bit different way, kind of in the way that you find it laid out by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You say, why would you prefer uh, that rather than the other? And not uh, pitting that which is the inspired word of God against a, a layman's track. I would simply say two things. One, I think there's better theological precision in Paul's four spiritual laws. And secondly, I like the theological ordering of Paul's four spiritual laws a little bit better as well. As we prepare to look at these ten verses, it's important to note that they are intimately connected to Ephesians chapter 1, and in particular verses 19 through 23. You cannot miss Paul's argument. He is going to tell us that the power, the what he calls in verse 19 of chapter 1, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe is the same power that in verse 20 worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In other words, it is the same power that raised Christ that raises up dead sinners like you and me, as he makes very clear in chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. In other words, he is going to paint a picture here in Ephesians 2, very much like he does in Romans 3, that our spiritual condition was so dire, it was so hopeless, it was so devastating that only this type of divine power could bring our dead souls back to life again. Indeed, we needed nothing less than a spiritual resurrection. And so we're going to see the first law in verses 1 through 3. The second law in verses 4 through 7. The third law in verses 8 and 9. And then the fourth spiritual law of the Apostle Paul in verse 10. So spiritual law number 1, verses 1 through 3. Apart from Christ, uh, we are spiritually dead. Apart from Christ Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Paul begins immediately by addressing our spiritual status apart from Christ before we become a part of his glorious body, which he has articulated in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And actually, three words could be used to capture for us what Paul sees as our condition apart from Christ. In verse 1, we are a spiritual corpse. In verses 2 and 3, we are spiritually controlled. And thirdly, in verse 3, we are spiritually condemned. We are are a corpse, we are controlled, and we are rightly and justly condemned. He begins in verse 1 emphatically, you yourselves, you were dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. And he makes a diagnosis. What was the cause of our death? And it's very simple. Trespasses and sins. 
It's as if the great physician left heaven and came walking down here upon the earth. And what he discovered was nothing less than a gigantic graveyard. And the cause of the death as he examined each and every individual soul was very clear. Trespasses. Uh, clear and direct violations of the will of God and sins, missing the mark. And, of course, the mark is the glory and the perfection of God. And yet this is an interesting kind of graveyard because though it's a graveyard, there are living dead moving about. As one man said, nothing less than spiritual zombies covered the planet walking the earth. And it's an interesting kind of death because it's not a dormant death. It's an active death. Uh, They are moving, Uh, they are acting, they are thinking, they are talking in radically negative categories. In fact, uh, Mark Dever said it as well as I have seen it in his own message on this particular text, talking about our condition apart from Christ. We walk where we should not walk. We think like we should not think. We go where we should not go. We do what we should not do. We serve where we should not serve. We follow who we should not follow. We obey who we should not obey. We gratify what we should not gratify. We crave what we should not crave. We desire what we should not desire. We dishonor what we should not dishonor. In other words, there's no spiritual life. No Godward impulse or Inclination. Now, we want to be fair, clearly. Uh, this deadness manifests itself more clearly in some than in others, but all of us are in the same category. We are all spiritually dead. Now, I think there are two important theological observations that we can make and should make at this point. Number one, if you need to have a grounding for the doctrine of total depravity, well, here it is. All aspects of our being is infected with the deadly disease of sin. Sin, if you like, is in the genes. It's our very DNA. And closely related to the idea of our total depravity, I believe, is the doctrine of our total inability. Morally, we are not capable of responding to God. In fact, we do not want to respond to God in our dead spiritual state. Death and decay. In terms of spiritual categories, is simply who we are. And so he begins by telling us that you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But then in verses 2 and 3, he goes on to explain why our spiritual condition apart from Christ is so hopeless. And interestingly, it is here and only here in all the Bible that the three great enemies to us, to human beings, is brought together in a nice, concise uh, category. I call it a trio of terror. He speaks of the course of the world in which we once walked or lived. He speaks, secondly, of the prince of the power of the air, which, of course, is Satan, the spirit that is now at work, very active in what he describes as sons of disobedience. And then, thirdly, he addresses the passions or the lust of the flesh, which carries out the desires both of the body and the mind. In other words, how we think, how we act are captive to this spiritual arsenal. Let's unwrap the three ideas for just a moment. He says our lives were characterized by this present evil age, the age from which Christ came to deliver us, according to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. In other words, our religious inclinations and impulses we're toward idolatries. Our moral compass was, was fractured. Our, our personal interests were turned in on ourselves. 
First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 will describe this world system that is dominating us as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in our possessions. It's a worldview that has no place for God and it has no place for eternal values. In other words, we followed and were controlled by this world system, but also we were following and controlled by a spiritual prince. The one that Paul will call in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the God of this world, whom he goes on to say, blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Of course, we know that this prince of the power of the air, this uh, one that he calls the God of this world, is Satan. Uh, Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this world in John chapter 12 and verse 31. He tells us in John 8 verse 44 that he was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth, that he is a liar and the father of lies. And Paul would want us to understand that in our dead spiritual state apart from Christ, he's at work. Uh, He's active. He's energizing. He's powerfully exercising his will in those whose very lives and nature are characterized as disobedience. He calls us sons of disobedience. It's a Hebraism, which simply means the very nature and character of who we are is that of disobedience. Of course, those of us who are here this afternoon and have children... Uh, very quickly recognize our own offspring in this description, do we not? Uh, our sons, our daughters do not come to this world finding it difficult to be disobedient. They find it difficult to be otherwise. Why? Because from the very origin of their conception, the seed of depravity and the seeds of sin are there in their very being. He uses that interesting phrase, the prince of the power of the air. And I would just simply say, I think he's getting at something like this. Just like the air we breathe is everywhere about us, So was the presence of the prince of the power of the air, the one that Jesus also called in Matthew chapter 9, the prince of demons, is active in that kind of almost omnipresent kind of a way. Peter O'Brien, in discussing just how influential are the demonic forces in our lives, says, and I quote, rebels against the authority of God who prefer to answer the promptings of the arch enemy. That is who we were apart from Christ. So he talks about us being uh, following the course of the world. He talks about us following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then thirdly, he says in verse 3, among whom we all, some believe, and I think rightly so, that he began verse 1 primarily with Gentiles in view. But now in case the Jewish hearers think that they are somehow superior to or in a different kind of category, he says, no, among whom we all. All Jew and Gentile, Paul and the rest, lived, uh, conducted our lives in the very passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires both of the body and the mind. Uh, one is almost taken back by the comprehensive uh, nature of Paul's argument. He started out with our environment that we are following this course of the world and we're being influenced by this prince who is as present with his demons as the air that we breathe. And then he begins to speak very specifically and very precisely addressing our our human nature. And bottom line, his analysis is rather simple and, and sobering. We were slaves. 
We were slaves to our passions, to our desires, to the lust of our fallen sinful nature, which is a meaning of the word flesh in this particular context. So let's back up. We were slaves to the world system. We were slaves to Satan. And yes, we are slaves to ourselves. It is nothing less than total domination. In fact, again, to make the argument so clear, both in our body and in our mind, we were controlled by these tyrannical dictators. In a, if you like, a symphony of sin, the body and the mind played in beautiful harmony to the conductor called the flesh. And so Paul brings it to a close there in verse 3, the, the end of it all. We were by nature children of wrath, another Hebraism, like the rest of mankind. Sons of disobedience in verse 2 were now viewed rightly as sons destined for wrath in verse 3. It's simply who we are. It's our nature. It's our very essence. It's our very being. And so our destiny as children of wrath is a rightly deserved destiny. Any way you look at it, look at it externally, look at it internally, look at it naturally, look at it supernaturally, our spiritual status could not be more tragic and it could not be more hopeless apart from Christ. Now, some may be here, and I do know that some, whether they're here or not, would sometimes say, but wait a minute, hold on, Danny, time out. Uh, is it not possible that Paul just kind of got carried away here in these three verses? Uh, isn't it possible that our spiritual condition is not really quite this bad? Or, or maybe you're actually misinterpreting Paul. Uh, maybe you're reading more into this idea of spiritual deadness than, than you ought. After all, uh, we do bear the, the image of God, and those who would say that would be correct. And theologically, though, we recognize that the image was damaged at the fall. It's not uh, completely destroyed. And again, I would say that they, that they are correct. Or as some theologians like to say, yes, the image in, uh, of God in man is defaced, but it's not erased. And again, I would absolutely agree with their judgment. But a quick survey of the New Testament would reveal... That what Paul zeroes in here, verses 1 through 3, what he zeroes in on in verses 1 through 3 is the consistent, unanimous testimony of the entirety of the Word of God. You cannot read the Bible fairly and not come away with a very strong doctrine of total depravity. And I've now become convinced you can't read the Bible rightly without coming away with a very strong doctrine of total inability as well. You say, make the case. I'll give it my best shot. Mark 7, 7. <laughs> we worshiped in vain with an air of religious superiority. Mark 7, 9. We were defiled and unclean in our hearts and lives before God. John 3, 18. We were in a state of condemnation before God. John 3, 19. We love the darkness rather than the light. John 3.20, we hate the light and do not come to the light. John 6.44, we cannot come to Christ. John 8.34, we are a slave to sin. Romans 3.10, we have no righteousness. Romans 3.11, we do not understand. Romans 3.11, we do not seek God.
God. Romans 3.12. We do not do one good thing because we do nothing for the glory of God. Romans 3.13-17. through 17, We are vicious destroyers. Romans 3.18. We don't fear God. Romans 6.17. Again, slaves to sin. Romans 8.7. Hostile to God. Romans 8.7. Cannot submit to God's law. Romans 8.8. 8, we cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, we do not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Romans 12.3, we cannot truly confess Christ as Lord. Galatians 1.4, captives of the present evil age. Galatians 3.10, cursed by the law. Galatians 5.16-18, gratified the desires of our sinful nature. Galatians 5.19-21, we do the works of the flesh. Ephesians 2.12, separated from Christ. Ephesians 2.12, no hope and we're without God. Ephesians 4.17, futile in our minds. Ephesians 4.18, darkening our understanding. Ephesians 4.18, alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18, hard-hearted. Ephesians 4.19, sensual and greedy. Ephesians 4.19, practice every kind of impurity. Colossians 1.21, alienated from God. Colossians 1.21, hostile in our minds toward God. Colossians 2.21, we did evil deeds. 2 Timothy 2.26, captives of Satan. 1 John 1.6, walked in darkness. 1 John 1.8, self-deceived. 1 John 1.10, we call God a liar. 1 John 2.9 and 11, we're in darkness. 1 John 2.15-17, we love the world and not God. 1 John 3.4, we practice sin. 1 John 3.8, we're of the devil. 1 John 3.10, we don't rightly love others. 1 John 3.14, we abide in death. 1 John 3.15, we're murderers. 1 John 4, 1 through 6, we're captive to the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 4, 8, we do not know God. 1 John 5, 21, we were idol worshipers. It is not a person's natural inclination to want to paint that kind of picture of human persons and human nature. But when you read the Word of God, it's absolutely inescapable. We were dead, undone, depraved, no ability whatsoever to go looking for or to seek God out. In 1987, a movie came out that virtually had a cult following among the youth of the day, which will apply to some of you because as soon as I mention it, uh, your antennas are going to go up. That movie that had such a large and wide following was simply entitled The Princess Bride. How many of you remember this movie? And uh, yes, uh, basically most of you have the whole thing memorized. My, my own four sons only watched it 473 times. And so uh, I, I was very much in, uh, aware of this movie. And of course, if you remember the movie, there's a hero by the name of Wesley. Uh, and in the latter part of the movie, he's brutally tortured by the evil prince Humperdinck. Uh, and apparently he dies. And of course, um, his friend... Uh, Indigo Montoya takes him to who? Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal. And so uh, in, in Indigo Montoya brings uh, Wesley to Miracle Max. And here's the dialogue that takes place in this portion of The Princess Bride. Uh, Indigo Montoya, he's dead. He can't talk. Miracle Max, who, who, who? Look who knows so much. Hey, well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. Now, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead. Well, with all dead things, there's usually only one thing that you can do. 
And Inga Del Montoya says, what's that? Miracle Max, go through their clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> Spiritual law number one could not be more clear. Regardless of what some theologians may argue, we're not good. We're not even neutral. We're not some dead. We're not mostly dead. We are all dead. We are totally dead. We are completely dead. As Ephesians 2.12 says once again, we have no hope and are without God in this world. Apart from Christ Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Spiritual law number two, with Christ Jesus, we are made spiritually alive. Verses four through seven. As horrible as verses one through three are, verses four through ten could not be more wonderful. Here we are now introduced to words like not just mercy, rich in mercy. Not just love, great love. Not, not just grace, immeasurable Riches of his grace. Words like saved, heavenly places, kindness, gift of God, faith, and good works. These are now the words that dominate the remainder of the conversation. You see, it's a very crucial point, pastorally speaking, that we must grab hold of, and that is this. We must come first and foremost to a clear understanding of our sin and God's wrath before we can more fully appreciate and rejoice in God's salvation and God's goodness. You make light of your sin and you'll make light of the sacrifice of Christ. You make light of the wrath of God and you'll make light of the salvation that has so graciously been bestowed upon you. In fact, you will never, ever appreciate salvation and God's goodness until you understand the gravity of your sin and of your wrath. You see, dead people need to be made alive like Lazarus. We need to be called forth from our spiritual grave. John Piper is right. We were not in the doghouse. We were in the morgue. And telling dead people to try harder is like telling a corpse in a coffin to get up. No, we did not need an educator. We did not need a therapist. We did not need a motivator. We desperately needed a Savior. And so verse 4 signals what I call the great Grand reversal, and then it unfolds magnificently, but God, but God. And then you see, following in verses 4 through 10, this incredible difference of who we now are in Christ as opposed to who we once were outside of Christ. I think, again, drawing a contrast can be very helpful here. I just make it in, in eight quick observations before, dead in trespasses and sins, now alive together with Christ. Before, sons of disobedience now raised up together with Christ. Before, children of wrath now seated together in heavenly places in Christ. Before, children of wrath now recipients of generous mercy. Before, children of wrath now recipients of great love. Before, children of wrath now recipients of immeasurable rich grace. Before, children of wrath now recipients of God's kindness before children of wrath, now trophies of God's grace. And so even when we were dead in trespasses, rightful objects of God's wrath, a river flowing with mercy, great love, rich grace, and kindness suddenly rushes madly in our direction through 
Christ Jesus. And so I want to make from that very quickly five theological observations that I think must naturally uh, be part and parcel of our theological understanding of conversion and also just overall the doctrine of salvation. First, I think it interesting that the main verb of the paragraph does not even show up until verse 5 where you see the phrase, He made us alive. In other words, the focus of the text is on our regeneration, our conversion through Christ. Secondly, the same power that raised Jesus bodily from the dead in chapter 1, verse 20, is now the same power that raises us up spiritually from the dead in chapter 2 and verse 5. The parallels are too obvious and clearly intentional. Thirdly, to my dismay and surprise, and interesting, we were talking uh, during lunch about uh, the translations that the different uh, brothers preach from and which translations they perhaps are going to move to in the future. And, of course, you know from what I read a moment ago, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, I like the ESV. I preach out of it uh, now. Uh, I would have made some uh, uh, different translation decisions at certain points. But on this one, I think they blew it. I just think they flat out blew it. Because there's a beautiful parallelism in the Greek text that focuses on union with Christ at being at, as being at the very heart of conversion. And I think they miss it because you'll see there the word together in verse 5. But then they change the word to with him and with him in verse 6. And I actually much prefer the King, the New King James Version, which said it this way. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up. Together, and God made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, I become more convinced than ever that the very heart of the doctrine of conversion must be an understanding of our union with Christ. The purpose of conversion is to unite us with Christ as the new impulse, the new vitality, the new nature that now indeed is energizing in those who know him. Fourthly, then, union with Christ must be at the heart of any doctrine of conversion, regeneration and new birth. Fifthly, both in verse five and again in verse eight. The phrase, by grace you have been saved, is in the perfect tense, emphasizing the abiding consequences of our conversion. In other words, if I were teaching a class on systematic theology, I would argue that at least in seed form, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 8, is the three tenses of Salvation. In other words, we need to remind our people that there is a sense in which we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in the future. In fact, if you want to place it again in theological categories that you find permeating especially the writings of Paul, we have been saved in the past. That's our justification from sin's penalty. Uh, we are being saved in the present. Uh, that is sanctification and salvation from sin's power. And ultimately, we will be saved through glorification and the very presence of sin. And all of this is ours by virtue of our conversion and our union with Christ. And again, Paul is so interested in union with Christ. He will use that phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, no less than 27 times in the book of Ephesians alone. Peter O'Brien, again, I think is very helpful when he notes that those who are now in Christ, quote, we are the recipients of this generosity. 
and had been made enemies of God now and liable to his wrath. But they are now in Christ Jesus and God views them as he views his beloved son. In raising and exalting Christ, God demonstrates the surpassing greatness of his power. In raising and exalting us, he has also displayed the surpassing riches of his grace. Spiritual law number two, with Christ Jesus, we are made spiritually alive. Spiritual law number three, through Christ Jesus, we are saved by grace through faith. The gospel it's the good news that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into this world and lived a perfect, sinless life. He lived the life that you and I should have lived but could not live. And because he lived that perfect, sinless life, he could be set forth as a propitiation, as a satisfaction. He could indeed bear in his body the full wrath and judgment of God as our penal substitute. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. But in our place, he bore God's wrath. He bore God's judgment. He was gloriously raised from the dead in bodily resurrection. That is the proclamation of the gospel summarized perhaps best in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. But now the question that Paul wants to address in verses 8 and 9 is, how do we appropriate this gospel? How do we make this gospel our very own? And again, I know in a room like this, the overwhelming majority of you are believers, but I would never assume that you have put your faith and trust in Christ and believe the gospel you know, it's even possible, as we talked about earlier today with, with David's message, that you are here and you've got all the gospel facts in your head, but yet there's never been a surrender of your heart and your life and your will to Christ. Let me make something just crystal clear. James 2.19 reminds us that there is a demon faith. There is a demon faith, but demon faith does not save. And let me be even more clear than that. Demons have really good theology. Demons have really good theology. I'm about to complete two years preaching through the Gospel of Mark. I listened to Mark Dever preach through the Gospel of Mark. Demons make a number of confessions in Mark's Gospel, don't they? They get it right every time. Their Christology is stellar. Uh, they could teach theology in some seminaries, not mine, but they could teach uh, uh, theology in, in, in some seminaries. In fact, maybe they do in some, but, but, but though actually that's different... Must be different kinds of demons because their theology is messed up. But no, demons in the Bible, man, they're spot on when it comes to their understanding intellectually of Christ. But there is a kind of faith that does not save. And so Paul helps us understand the kind that does save here. And if I could just summarize and then develop it out again very quickly, what he is saying in verse 8 and verse 9 is simply this. One, and the order is important, God extends the grace... Two, we exercise faith. God extends the grace. We exercise the faith. And so, what does he say in 289? For by grace, you have been saved. Perfect tense verb. Saved in the past. Being saved now. Being saved in the future. It's through faith. So that you understand what he means by through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. No one will boast about their salvation. So, Five theological observations, again, from these two verses. One, we are saved by grace, God's unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense. I like to say this, everything a good and loving and kind God does for sinners that they do not deserve. 
So prevalent is the concept of grace in the New Testament. The word occurs more than 150 times. It occurs 100 times alone in the writings of Paul. Secondly, and this is crucial, the instrumental means by which we experience salvation is faith, trust, reliance upon Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. Let me be clear. We are not saved by faith, but by Christ. Or if you like, we're saved by faith in Christ. Or we're saved by Christ through faith. In other words, faith is the means whereby we lay hold of what Christ has done for us. The wonderful New Testament scholar for many years at Southwestern Seminary, Curtis Vaughn, simply said, faith is the hand that receives the gift. Which leads then to my third observation, salvation is not the result of any human works of our own doing or effort. It cannot be earned. It cannot be purchased by moral behavior or even religious activity. In fact, if you want God's commentary on our moral behavior and our religious activity, just recall Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Fourth. Salvation is a gift. And I believe the grammar of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 clearly indicates that the whole of salvation is to be viewed as a gift. Grace is his gift. Saving faith is his gift. Salvation is his gift. And then fifthly, because of the gracious nature of salvation, all human boasting is excluded. It's rendered null and void. For a group like this, it's good to be reminded that you were not saved because you were better, because you were wiser, because you were more gifted than anybody else. Uh, it is an act of pure grace that you were born into a context where you could hear the gospel. It is an act of pure grace that God opened your dead heart that you might receive and believe the gospel. It was an act of his sheer grace that he gave you the faith to believe the gospel. Thus, Paul would say in Galatians 6 and verse 14, Oh, there is a place to boast, and it is only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin said it like this, commenting on these verses. In these three phrases, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Paul embraces the substance of his long argument in the epistles to the Romans and to the Galatians that righteousness comes to us from the mercy of God alone and is offered to us in Christ by the gospel and it is received by faith alone without the merit of any human work. Spiritual law number three, through Christ Jesus, we are saved by grace through faith. Finally, spiritual law number four, in Christ Jesus, we are created for good works. The call of the reformers of the 16th century, I believe, is clear and consistent. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Or to say it another way, we are not saved by faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that does work. Indeed, the God who saves us, verse 10 informs us, is the same God who is working in us and he is working on us. And I love how Paul says it. We are his workmanship. The Amplified Bible says we are his own handiwork. 
The Holman Christian Standard says we are his creation. I like the New Living Translation the best. We are his masterpiece. That same word only occurs, what masterpiece, poema, in one other place in the New Testament, and that is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, where there Paul is speaking of the material creation. It's a beautiful analogy, isn't there? The heavens and the earth certainly declare the greatness of God's material creation, but saved sinners declare the greatness of his spiritual creation. One draws attention to God's glory, but the other rightly draws attention to God's grace. And so like our conversion, our spiritual growth and maturity takes place where? In Christ Jesus. And as I think there's a clear connection here between verse 7 and verse 10 because as, the, as displays of God's immeasurable riches of grace and his work of art, good works are what? Simply the natural outgrowth of God's work of regeneration. In fact, Paul's pretty clear, isn't it? These good works were prepared beforehand. In other words, it was a part of God's eternal sovereign plan that we should walk in them. And don't miss the, uh, the, the, the um, uh, contrast as how we began in verse 1 and how we now end in verse 10. Because in verse 1, he talked about where we walked. We once walked following the course uh, of this world and we followed after and walked after the prince of the power of the air. But now we have a completely different walk. We now walk in a way that is consistent with our new status and our new position in Christ Jesus. You know, interestingly, the pastoral epistles love to use the phrase good works. It occurs repeatedly in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and in Titus. And just in case that you think that the good works somehow need to be separated from this whole understanding of the holistic nature of salvation, just remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I simply want us to understand this afternoon that there is no antinomian impulse in the Bible. There is no antinomian impulse in the Bible. There are always gospel imperatives that naturally flow from the gospel indicative. Luther perhaps said it best in his treatise on good works. Truly, if faith is there, he, the one justified, cannot hold back. He proves himself. He breaks out into good works confesses and teaches this gospel for the people and stakes his life on it. Or take his preface to the epistle to the Romans. Instead, faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God, John 1.13. It kills the old Adam and makes us completely different people. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts, and all our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Yes, it is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. But faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done. But before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone then who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. He stumbles around and he, he looks for faith and good works, even though he does not know what faith and good works even are. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul calls on the Ephesians to remember 
who and what they were before they were converted in Christ, before they heard the word of truth and the gospel of their salvation and believed in him in chapter 1 and verse 13. Uh, Perhaps uh, John Newton said it as well as anyone, that wonderful hymn writer. I got this out of Mark's book, The Nine Marks, on the chapter of conversion. Newton said, and I quote, I am not what I ought to be, and I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And in my preparation for this study, I came across a old hymn uh, that was written in the days of the Reformers by, by a man named Paulus Spiritus. I had never come across uh, him before, but I came across this hymn that just in such a magnificent way uh, summarizes so beautifully what I have uh, falteringly said this morning about this afternoon about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So I, I close with this. I, I hope I read it well, and I hope that, that it blesses you as it has blessed me. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. This is our one Redeemer. What God did in his law demand and none to him could render, cause wrath and woe on every hand for man, the vile offender. Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires, and lost is our condition. From sin our flesh could not abstain, sin held its sway unceasing. The task was useless and in vain, our guilt was air increasing. None can remove sin's poison dart or purify our guiltful heart. So deep is our corruption. Yet as the law must be fulfilled or we must die despairing, Christ came and has God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing. He has for us the law obeyed and thus his father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, each Christian therefore may be glad and build on this foundation. Your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Your death is now my life. Indeed, for you have paid my ransom. The law reveals the guilt of sin and makes us conscious stricken. But then the gospel enters in the sinful soul to quicken Come to the cross, trust Christ and live. The law no peace can ever give, no comfort and no blessing. Faith clings, faith clings to Christ, crossed alone, and rest in him unceasing. And by its fruits, true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify, work, serve our neighbor, and supply the proof that faith is living. All blessing, honor, Thanks and praise to Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who saves us by His grace, all glory to His merit. O triune God in heaven above, you have revealed your saving love, your blessed name we hallow. Dear Father, thank you so much that when we were dead, slaves to Satan, slaves to this evil world, slaves to our own flesh, you in great love, magnificent mercy, 
and amazing grace reached down and quickened our dead souls and made us alive in Christ. And you did it not on the basis of anything we've done, but on the basis of what you have done for us in sending your Son to bear in his body the full penalty of our sin. And so, Lord, we recognize this day that if we are here and we are part of the redeemed, the family of God, it is an act of sheer unmitigated grace that we never deserved, that we could have never earned, purchased, or bought. And so, Lord, all we do is extend empty hands, and in amazing grace, you fill them with your salvation. You fill them with your love. You fill them with your grace and your mercy and your kindness. And, Lord, how we thank you that not only do you save us, you sanctify us. Not only do you save us and sanctify us, but you have promised in your word that you will glorify us for such a great and awesome salvation. All we can say is thank you. Bless your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.